Down Syndrome, A Review of Key Perioperative Implications by Cheryl Hines and Stacy Simmons. Abstract. Down Syndrome, DS, is the most common chromosomal abnormality in humans that is compatible with life. This syndrome occurs when there is an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. Down syndrome is associated with numerous comorbidities that can pose challenges for the perioperative nurse caring for a patient with DS undergoing surgery. These challenges can affect the patient assessment, communication with the patient, and patient safety. For example, preventing complications. As the life expectancy of people with DS has increased, so too have the chances that perioperative nurses will care for a patient with this disorder. This article reviews the pathophysiology of DS, discusses common comorbidities that may directly affect perioperative care, and reviews an exemplar case study that demonstrates how personnel with knowledge of DS can positively influence surgical team decision-making for these patients in the perioperative setting. French physician Jérôme Lejeune first identified and explained the genetic pathogenesis of Down syndrome, DS, as a chromosomal condition in 1959. Inside the human body exist germ cells, which are cells that are capable of sexually reproducing. Germ cells divide through the process of meiosis to create gametes, or reproductive cells, that is, egg sperm. Inside these reproductive cells, human DNA is organized into 23 chromosomes. In most cases, all human cells contain 46 chromosomes, 23 of which are provided by each parent. In cases of DS, there is an extra copy on the 21st chromosome, that is, trisomy 21, resulting in a total of 47 chromosomes. There are three known pathogenic pathways for the development of DS, non-disjunction, mosaicism, and translocation. Non-disjunction, or trisomy 21, is the genetic basis for most individuals diagnosed with DS. Non-disjunction occurs during meiosis, when an error in cell division results in a triplication, or trisomy, of chromosome 21. See figure 1. The condition described as mosaicism, or mosaic DS, occurs when the majority of cells contain 46 chromosomes, but a small number contain an extra 47th chromosome. See figure 2. Translocation is a rare form of DS that requires some understanding of the shape of a chromosome. Chromosomes are X-shaped, with the two arms, that is, telomeres, crossing at the centromere. Not all centromeres are located in the center of the X, however. In an acrocentric chromosome, that is, chromosome 21, the centromere is located very close to one end of the chromosome, thus creating one long arm and one short arm on that particular chromosome. In translocation, the long arm of chromosome 21 and the long arm of another acrocentric chromosome break near their centromeres and fuse to form one large metacentric chromosome. An individual with this type of DS will have 46 chromosomes, but the attached fragment creates the trisomy. Comorbidities associated with DS 
improvements in healthcare have increased the life expectancy of individuals with DS. In 1960, life expectancy was 10 years of age. Today, it is approximately 60 years. Worldwide, DS occurs in one out of every 1,000 live births. The incidence in the United States is one in 700 live births, which means that approximately one out of every 1,200 individuals in the United States is living with DS. Given the longer life expectancies and predisposition to comorbidities, it is likely the perioperative nurse will care for patients with DS during their nursing career. Therefore, perioperative nurses must be able to develop comprehensive plans of care that address not only current surgical needs, but also potential comorbidities in this population. See Table 1. Respiratory. Many people with DS experience cervical, that is, atlantoaxial, atlantooccipital, instability, because of laxity in the supporting ligaments. However, few patients are symptomatic. Currently, there are no guidelines regarding when to perform pre-intubation cervical imaging in this population. During the preoperative assessment, perioperative nurses should ask patients and caregivers if they have experienced any of the following. 1. Recent changes in gait or limb mobility, general coordination, range of motion in the neck or bowel or bladder function. 2. Muscle weakness. Or 3. Muscle, neck, or neuropathic pain. If the nurse identifies any abnormalities, he or she should discuss possible imaging with the anesthesia professional and surgeon. Even if the assessment reveals no changes or symptoms of cervical instability, the anesthesia professional should consider avoiding neck flexion or extension during laryngoscopy and using an inline neck stabilizer or collar. Also, the anesthesia professional should consider the use of fiber optic or video-assisted laryngoscopy. Perioperative nurses should be prepared to assist with airway management if needed. Careful patient positioning with documentation of neutral head and neck position is recommended. Researchers conducted a retrospective chart review of more than 2,000 pediatric patients who received general anesthesia at their facility. They found that patients with DS, N equals 1,213, had an increased incidence of perioperative respiratory adverse events compared with the matched control patients. N equals 1,213, and most of these events were related to airway obstruction. There was no statistical difference regarding incidence of laryngospasm, bronchospasm, post-extubation stridor, or oxygen desaturation among the groups. The RN circulator should consider reporting any airway event to the post-anesthesia care unit, PACU, nurse during the handover, including information regarding how the event was resolved. Additionally, the team members transporting the patient from the OR to the PACU should consider taking airway equipment, for example, oral and nasal airway, bag valve mask resuscitator, with them in case airway obstruction develops. Upper airway obstruction and obstructive sleep apnea are commonly associated with DS. In both cases, Adenotonsillectomy is generally considered the first line of treatment. Patients with obstructive sleep apnea 
cardiac complications associated with obstructive sleep apnea, obesity, craniofacial anomalies, neuromuscular disorders, current respiratory infections, or other concerns that would place them in a high-risk patient population, should have an overnight inpatient stay and monitoring. Respiratory immunity disorders are common in patients with DS. Pneumonia is a principal cause of morbidity among children with DS and the leading cause of mortality among adults with DS. Although the exact causes are unknown, individuals diagnosed with DS can experience age-related variances in levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Findings from animal research show that it could be related to early-onset Alzheimer disease in some individuals with DS. Alzheimer disease places the individual in a pre-inflammatory state, that is, high levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha and interleukin-6. Coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19, is known to develop by creating elevated levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines and cytokine release syndrome, ultimately resulting in cytokine storm. The cytokine storm coupled with the already existing pro-inflammatory state results in individuals with DS who contract COVID-19 having a less favorable prognosis. Authors of an analysis comparing overall COVID-19 trends among people with and without intellectual and developmental disabilities and stratified by age concluded that individuals with these disabilities appear to be at greater risk for severe outcomes related to the current COVID-19 pandemic. In 2009, another viral respiratory infection pandemic caused by influenza A virus, subtype H1N1, AH1N1, resulted in individuals with DS experiencing a higher prevalence of hospitalization, endotracheal intubation, and death, largely because individuals with DS are more prone to lower respiratory tract infections. Along with new knowledge of COVID-19 and the predisposition of individuals with DS to contract lower respiratory tract infections, it is reasonable to assume patients with DS are at risk for severe consequences from contraction of COVID-19. Although individuals with DS are at an increased risk of acquiring a respiratory infection, to date, there is no evidence that they are at an increased risk of acquiring COVID-19. Because of the many comorbidities associated with patients with DS, a comprehensive preoperative assessment of the respiratory system, for example, inspection, auscultation, a complete respiratory health history, is vital. Comorbidities of the upper and the lower airway contribute to respiratory dysfunction and infection, for example, pneumonia. The comorbidities associated with DS increase the number of postoperative respiratory complications among patients with DS and manifest via their need for mechanical ventilation or supplemental oxygen. Therefore, inclusion of the patient's respiratory assessment in the handover communication between the RN circulator and postoperative nurse is essential. Congenital airway abnormalities, such as the laryngomalacia, tracheomalacia, tracheal stenosis, and tracheal bronchus, all predispose people with DS to pneumonia, atelectasis, aspiration, and poor secretion clearance. 
Respiratory infection is further complicated by impaired gas exchange, caused by lungs with reduced alveolar surface area, a result of fewer but larger alveoli and the presence of subpleural cysts. Ciliary beat action in the lungs is also compromised because of a reduction in beat frequency and movement, making airway clearance more challenging. In early childhood, children with DS are more susceptible to frequent, severe, and prolonged upper respiratory tract infections than children without DS. As children with DS mature, this susceptibility translates to a higher incidence of hospitalization, respiratory syncytial virus infections, and acute respiratory distress syndrome. Cardiovascular Congenital heart disease occurs in approximately 43% of individuals with DS, representing the most common congenital disorder in this population. The most common types of congenital heart defects among children with DS are atrioventricular canal defect, 39%, atrial septal defect, 42%, and ventricular septal defect, 43%. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all newborns with DS undergo an echocardiogram immediately after birth. Infants with cardiac defects should be monitored closely for signs of heart failure, including tachypnea, feeding difficulties, and poor weight gain. Delays in repairing congenital heart defects put the child at risk of developing irreversible lung disease and pulmonary hypertension. Therefore, Early detection and intervention are critical. Children with DS are more likely than those without to develop pulmonary hypertension, even in the absence of cardiac defects. The incidence of persistent pulmonary hypertension in newborns is greatly increased in children with DS. Children with DS are more prone to developing pulmonary hypertension, that is, cardiac and non-cardiac because of abnormal pulmonary vasculature and impaired regulation of vascular tone and function. Pulmonary hypertension in individuals with DS is associated with increased morbidity and mortality, prolonged length of hospital stay, and longer duration of mechanical ventilation. Perioperative nurses should assess every patient with DS who presents for surgery for the presence and severity of congenital heart disease. The perioperative nurse should not only perform a thorough and focused cardiac assessment, but also should verify that diagnostic reports and baseline laboratory results are available for review. The nurse should ensure that the severity of the abnormality, the status of repair, and the presence of any residual lesions have been thoroughly assessed and documented before surgery. Because children with DS have an increased risk of developing bradycardia during anesthesia induction, anticholinergic agents, for example, atropine, should be readily available during the procedure. Hematological Thrombocytopenia and polycythemia are also common in neonates with DS. However, affected infants may not be symptomatic, so a full blood count should be performed at birth. Transient myoproliferative disorder, a type of leukemoid reaction, occurs in approximately 10% of newborns with DS and is almost exclusive to this population. Although the condition usually resolves spontaneously by age 3 months, 
up to one-third of these children will develop leukemia later in life. Signs of leukemia include easy bruising, petechia, fatigue, and changes in feeding patterns. Down syndrome is a strong risk factor for childhood leukemia. There is a 20-fold increase in the risk of developing acute lymphoblastic leukemia and acute myelogenous leukemia in children with DS compared with the general population. Among those with DS, almost two-thirds of childhood leukemia cases occur before five years of age. Among children with this leukemia, 80% will undergo a spontaneous remission and have a five-year survival rate of 80%. Children and young adults with DS should undergo periodic annual screenings for iron deficiency, as poor feeding habits can lead to nutritional deficits and anemia. Gastrointestinal Because gastrointestinal abnormalities are associated with DS, patients may present for surgery with fluid and electrolyte imbalances. During the preoperative assessment, the nurse should consider reviewing the laboratory results and performing a general assessment for symptoms of dehydration. For example, dry mouth, dry skin, decreased urine output. Gastroesophageal reflux disease, GERD, is also a common comorbidity associated with DS. Poor muscle tone in the oropharynx, esophagus, abdominal muscles, and gastroesophageal junction all contribute to the development of this disease. The nurse should be prepared to assist the anesthesia professional with the application of cricoid pressure during intubation. Endocrine Congenital and acquired thyroid disorders are common in people with DS. Up to one-half of all individuals with DS will experience thyroid dysfunction. Newborns with DS are routinely screened for hypothyroidism, which is an extremely common ailment in this population. Congenital hypothyroidism is a condition in which the thyroid gland is underactive and fails to produce sufficient thyroid hormone beginning at birth. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all infants be screened within four days of birth, typically before discharge home from the hospital. However, because of the variability in the sensitivity of standard newborn screenings, all infants with DS should undergo repeat thyroid screenings at ages 6 and 12 months, and then every 1 to 2 years through adulthood. The risk of hypothyroidism increases with age. Therefore, adults with DS should undergo screenings every 1 to 2 years. Symptoms of hypothyroidism can be difficult to distinguish in individuals with DS because excessive weight gain, fatigue, and constipation are common in this population. Proper treatment of thyroid disorders in patients with DS is crucial for optimizing neurodevelopmental outcomes and weight management. Children with DS are highly susceptible to developing autoimmune diseases, including Hashimoto thyroiditis, Graves' disease, type 1 diabetes mellitus, and celiac disease. Children with DS are more likely to develop type 1 diabetes mellitus than children without DS. Patients with DS who have pre-existing endocrine conditions and are undergoing surgery require special consideration during preoperative evaluation and postoperative care. The preoperative assessment should include the degree of glycemic control for individuals with diabetes 
and thyroid function for patients with thyroid disease. Growth patterns in children and young adults with DS vary from those of the general population. For example, the average height is approximately two standard deviations below the mean. Individuals with DS have an overall reduced growth velocity, possibly because of feeding difficulties in infancy, thyroid dysfunction, celiac disease, and obstructive sleep apnea. Likewise, the body mass index of people with DS also varies from the general population. Infants with DS tend to be underweight. However, as individuals with DS age, they become more prone to being overweight or obese. Three-quarters of adults with DS are either overweight or obese, with overall lower observed activity levels compared with adults without DS. Obesity in this population is multifactorial. Low muscle tone, altered autonomic dysfunction during exercise, and impaired cognition are a few potential causes. Neurological Children with DS are known to have developmental delays, including language, motor, cognitive, and adaptive impairments. Intellectual deficits range from mild to severe. Comorbid conditions, such as congenital heart disease, may be a contributing factor. Neurocognitive impairments may explain why they are more prone to developing hyperactivity, impulsivity, anxiety, and tantrums when compared with the general population. They are also predisposed to autism spectrum disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Hearing difficulties and language delay deficits also contribute to communication barriers in this population. Meeting the patient with a parent or caregiver present may provide insight into patient-specific communication issues. Hearing impairment is extremely common among individuals with DS. Conductive hearing loss in children is most often caused by otitis media, a condition that widely affects children with DS. The perioperative nurse needs to be aware of the effect that hearing loss may have on the ability of a patient with DS to communicate and interact socially, as well as his or her general intellectual development. Additional perioperative nursing considerations for patients with DS. As with all patients, the perioperative nurse should confirm the administration of ordered prophylactic antibiotics practice strict infection prevention measures, maintain normothermia through the use of warmed blankets or forced air warmers, strictly monitor intake, that is, IV fluids, and output, monitor for active bleeding, and provide patient and family education concerning postoperative complications. Infection prevention. Infection prevention is integral to perioperative nursing. Individuals with DS are not only more likely than individuals without DS to develop an infection, but also may experience prolonged recovery. The perioperative nurse should determine if the patient with DS has been medically optimized for surgery. If the patient reports a current or recent upper respiratory tract infection, the risk of postoperative respiratory complications should be weighed against the benefits of the surgery. A database review of medical and surgical complications and inpatient postoperative mortality in pediatric patients with and without DS undergoing intestinal surgery found 
No difference in rates of wound disruption, bleeding complications, or wound infection among the groups. Conversely, authors of a systematic review that evaluated nine studies involving patients with DS who underwent total hip arthroplasty found that medical and surgical complications were three times higher in patients with DS than in their matched controls. Specifically, patients with DS experienced higher rates of pneumonia, acute renal failure, urinary tract infection, wound hemorrhage, and wound infection. Authors of a study comparing postoperative complications among children with and without DS who underwent abdominal and thoracic procedures found that patients with DS were more likely to experience postoperative complications, 16.2% versus 10.8%, P less than 0.001. However, after adjusting for other comorbidities, they concluded that the complication rates were the same. Medication Administration Because of the numerous neurologic and psychiatric comorbidities that people with DS may possess, anesthesia providers may choose to withhold sedation. For example, by approximately 40 years of age, almost all adults with DS experience neurologic changes consistent with Alzheimer disease because of the overexpression of amyloid precursor protein located on chromosome 21. For these patients, benzodiazepines may be withheld because of the increased risk of cognitive impairment and delirium, and non-pharmacologic methods, such as distraction and comfort measures, may be employed to reduce patient anxiety. Additional preoperative pharmacotherapeutic concerns should include assessment for use of antiseizure, antidepressant, and antipsychotic medications. Individuals with DS may have variations in medication metabolism because of the altered expression of drug-metabolizing enzymes associated with chromosome 21. Regarding analgesia, there is no difference in analgesic requirements for individuals with DS. The postoperative RN should use his or her assessment skills to treat the pain needs of the individual patient. Case Study Ms. M., a 25-year-old white female with DS, is diagnosed with a right hip fracture and scheduled for an open reduction internal fixation of her right hip three hours after being involved in a motor vehicle accident in which she was riding in the front passenger seat of the car. The airbag in the car was deployed, forcing her into the passenger side window. Upon arrival to the emergency department, she is complaining of hip and neck pain, 7 out of 10 on the pain scale, and is wearing a hard cervical collar that was placed by the emergency medical services pending cervical spine x-ray results. She is tearful and afraid, but with her parent at the bedside, she is cooperative. Her hearing aids were displaced during the accident. Emergency personnel placed a 20-gauge antecubital fossa IV catheter at the scene of the accident. The IV is patent, and fluids are infusing at 125 milliliters an hour. Her medical history is positive for hypothyroidism, GERD, and obesity. Body mass index is 32. Home medications include levothyroxine, famotidine, and a multivitamin. Previous surgeries include bilateral myringotomy with tubes, tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, and esophagastroduodenoscopy. 
She had no adverse events during the previous procedures and has no known allergies. Preoperative phase. The perioperative nurse, Gina, evaluates Ms. M's overall health and emotional status. Ms. M's parent is present during their first encounter. Gina evaluates the patient's level of understanding about what is going on around her, especially because her hearing is impaired and her hearing aids are absent. Gina uses visual aids to explain monitoring, for example, electrocardiogram pads, blood pressure cuff, pulse oximeter probe, and brings in an anesthesia professional, Kelly, a CRNA who has a face mask that she uses to demonstrate the induction of anesthesia. In response to Ms. M's questions about how the fracture will be fixed, Gina uses the analogy, quote, If your table leg was broken at home, you would use a screw to fix it, end quote. Gina also uses a face's pain scale to reinforce how postoperative pain will be evaluated. Because it is common for adults with DS to lack medical optimization by their primary care physician, Gina carefully reviews all assessment data. Given Ms. M's comorbidities, for example, GERD obesity, Gina performs a detailed history and assessment to gather information on Ms. M's baseline health status and also her risk for postoperative complications. Ms. M's preoperative laboratory results and cervical spine studies are within normal limits. The surgeon and the anesthesiologist, Dr. S., obtain informed consent from Ms. M's parent. Gina and Kelly evaluate Ms. M's need for preoperative sedation and find that based on her anxiety, pain level, and communication issues, a preoperative sedation is warranted. Based on Ms. M's anxiety and general presentation, Dr. S. plans to administer general anesthesia. Dr. S. assigns an American Society of Anesthesiologists classification of 3 and a Malampati airway score of grade 3. Visualization of the oropharynx is limited to the base of the uvula on oral inspection. Dr. S. also anticipates a difficult intubation based on the desire to limit Ms. M's neck extension, her grade 3 Malampati airway score, and her large tongue. Dr. S. requests that a video laryngoscope and a smaller-sized endotracheal tube be available in the OR. Ms. M's history of GERD and the possibility of a full stomach also will necessitate a rapid-sequence intubation and the use of cricoid pressure. Given all these preoperative factors, the RN circulator will need to be prepared to assist with providing conversational distraction during induction, limiting neck manipulation during induction and intubation, and helping as needed during laryngoscopy and intubation. Gina decides to keep Ms. M in her patient room until it is time for surgery, so that her parent may remain with her. The preoperative assessments and safety checks can be conducted at the bedside with a parent present. Upon transport to the OR, Kelly administers midazolam, 1 mg IV, and a broad-spectrum antibiotic. Intraoperative phase Despite the normal cervical spine x-ray, Dr. S. and the RN circulator, Sal, decide to replace the patient's hard cervical collar with a soft cervical collar because of her neck pain and the generalized muscular hypotonia 
that is often seen in people with DS, thus ensuring proper head and neck alignment for both intubation and surgical positioning. Kelly uses the video laryngoscope and small endotracheal tube for intubation. After successful induction of anesthesia and endotracheal intubation, Sal places an external non-invasive female catheter, instead of an indwelling urinary catheter, to decrease Ms. M's risk of developing a urinary tract infection. Dr. S exchanges the antecubital IV catheter for an 18-gauge peripheral forearm IV catheter. Maintaining neutral neck alignment, the OR team members safely place Ms. M in the left lateral position with the appropriate auxiliary roll, hip positioners, and stabilizers. The team then secures the patient with a safety strap, pads all pressure points, places an intermittent pneumatic compression stocking on the left leg, checks the spine for neutral position, and places a dispersive electrode on her left thigh for the electrosurgical generator. Given Ms. M's normal preoperative laboratory tests, the surgeon and Dr. S decide not to use the intraoperative autotransfusion device. However, Dr. S. sends a type and screen to the laboratory. Before the surgical prep and draping, Sal places a warm blanket over the patient's non-operative leg and an upper-body forced air warmer on her torso to counteract the anticipated procedural hypothermia. The surgical procedure is uneventful, and Ms. M. is taken to the PACU. Postoperative phase During the postoperative handover, Sal and the PACU nurse, Violet, use SBAR, Situation Background Assessment Recommendation, to discuss the following. Ms. M's preoperative level of understanding, any barriers to communication, that is, hearing deficit, and if her parent should be permitted to remain with her in the PACU. See sidebar 1. Communication among the healthcare team is vital to Ms. M's postoperative experience, because individuals with DS may have difficulty expressing the sensations of pain and nausea as a result of communication challenges. As with other patients who have undergone anesthesia, Violet is alert to possible visual and auditory impairments, as well as pain, nausea, vomiting, somnolence, and sleep-associated airway obstruction. For children and adults with DS, the presence of caregivers can be invaluable to the postoperative care provider. While deciding whether to permit Ms. M's parent to remain with her in the PACU, they consider several factors, including the unit's ability to ensure privacy for other patients, the availability of staff members, and the facility's policy on non-patients in the PACU setting. In this case, the lack of privacy in the PACU does not allow for Ms. M's parent to be at the bedside. In lieu of her presence, Ms. M's parent provides her favorite blanket as a source of familiarity and comfort, and shares that Ms. M is typically slow to wake up most mornings, that is, in a non-medicated state. But she is cooperative and pleasant when she does wake. Knowing Ms. M's normal awakening pattern, Violet decides to avoid a stirrup regimen and allows Ms. M to awaken at her own pace. Ms. M begins interacting with Violet after 45 minutes and asks for her parent. Ms. M is transferred to the surgical unit, where she and her parent are educated regarding the need for an interdisciplinary care team to manage postoperative care and reduce the risk of complications. 
the surgeon and nurses monitor Ms. M for post-operative complications, for example, pneumonia, embolism, infection. The surgeon orders physical therapy for early ambulation, with weight-bearing as tolerated. Ms. M is able to progress from sitting in bed to walking with an assistive device over the next three days. She shows no signs of post-operative complications and is discharged four days later. Recovery without patient physical therapy is uneventful, and Ms. M is able to return to her usual activities within six weeks. Conclusion Improved medical management and early surgical intervention has led to an increased lifespan among individuals with DS. People with DS can have many comorbidities, for example, obstructive sleep apnea, pulmonary hypertension, congenital heart disease, GERD, hypothyroidism, hearing impairment, behavioral problems, that may potentially influence perioperative nursing care. During the preoperative assessment, the nurse should identify any unique needs for communication as well as any mental limitations. It is also important to include the parent or caregiver in the assessment to learn about any special concerns. Perioperative nurses often perform the critical role of coordinator among all members of the perioperative team. Understanding the complex comorbidities of this patient population and the possible adverse outcomes can help optimize the perioperative experience for patients with DS.